If you have your Bible, turn to this great, complex, quirky passage that Michelle has just read to us. Matthew chapter 27. So CJ would know as well as anybody, when you have a passage this big, this complicated, you've got two options. I can either kind of try to cover all of it in um, unsatisfying little pieces, or I can just take part of it and ignore lots of it in an unsatisfying way. Um, In the novel Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry uh, tells about Jaber, who's, uh, who's the town barber, and he says, listening to men talk in his chair for decades has taught him that there's always more that could be said than should be said, and there's always more that should be said than you've got time to say. Um, Ed thinks I don't agree with the last part, but generally speaking, that's the conundrum of this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to point out three lessons from the life of Isaac. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I, I don't, we don't in any way have time to explore all three of these and how deeply they're rooted and related in the passage. So I'm going to ask for a favor from you. Um, I'm going to name these lessons and try to open them up into, the li- into our life. But some of them are quite astonishing. And some of you are going to want to know, help me understand exactly the nuts and bolts of the way that comes out of the details of this passage. And I'm going to try to do some of that. But for some of you, it will be unsatisfactory. And I, I just, I don't know any other way around it this morning. So with that apology and begging of favor, let's begin. Three lessons from the family of Isaac. A lesson from Isaac, a lesson from his children, and a lesson from his wife. First of all, a lesson from Isaac, and I'll go ahead and name it. When we look at the life of Isaac in Genesis chapter 27, we see a sobering lesson about sin. I talked some about this last week, but it's here again. Look at Genesis 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Here is Isaac in his old age, behaving like Esau did in his adolescence. This is a remarkable echo of the first time we met Esau, where he betrays God for a meal. Here is Isaac disobeying God over a meal. It's a sad echo of Genesis A few chapters earlier, chapter 24, verse 1, when Abraham is at the end of his life. 24, 1 starts in the same way as 27, 1. When Isaac was old, 27, 1. 24, 1, when Abraham was old. Remember I taught you last week you're supposed to compare. At the end of Abraham's life, he does great acts of faithfulness. 
At the end of Isaac's life, he is a fool. It's also a sad parody echo of Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love. Here we see Isaac utterly failing. And it's told as an echo of Abraham's great act of faith in Genesis 22. It's told as an echo of Esau's adolescent, self-indulgent, appetite-driven character. What is going on here? When we first met Isaac in the Bible, this wasn't him. Think back with me if you know the Bible. The first time we meet Isaac is his miraculous birth. And then we watch his superb formation in the faith by a remarkable father. A father who teaches him about the greatness of God and how to walk with God to make God the very center of his life and to be loyal to that God even at the greatest cost. And then we see Isaac's miraculous marriage to a woman who is the new Abraham, leaves her country for the covenant. A woman of great faith. A woman who loves and obeys and follows God no matter the price. And then in Genesis 22 when Abraham offers Isaac to God as a sacrifice. It is a scene that is at once horrible and majestic. Full of dark meaning and mystery. Genesis 22. This is the offering of Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. It is horrible. It is majestic. It is full of dark meaning and mystery. It is a source of terrible fascination. And yet hope for readers from the earliest time to our own. And in the midst of this bone chilling episode. There is Isaac. Don't overlook Isaac at Genesis 22. A full grown man carrying his own wood to his own sacrifice. What other full grown man in the Bible does that? What other full grown man in the Bible picks up the wood of his death. And voluntarily in obedience to his father carries it. Isaac starts out his life. As a type of Christ. Born in a miracle. Humbly obedient even to his own death. And then we get to Genesis 25. We saw this. We saw this two weeks ago. We saw Isaac in a decades long persistent prayer over his wife's barrenness. In fact he's the only man in the entire Old Testament who faithfully endures barrenness. The only one. Succeeding where Abraham failed. And then in chapter 26, even though Isaac stumbles and bumbles at the end of the day, he obeys God and he lives in the astonishingly generous blessing of God. That's the first half of Isaac's life. The first half of Isaac's life is an ascent into greatness. But today, we encounter the second half of his life. And something has changed. And the change he has gone through is terrible. Where there was once remarkable, humble, trusting obedience to God. Now there is disobedience. God made it very clear. He told Rebecca in a prophecy, Jacob gets the blessing. 
He proved to Isaac through his son's despising of the birthright that that Esau in no way deserved the blessing. And he gets to the end of his life and he steadfastly commits himself to do the opposite of God's expressed, revealed will. Where is the man who carried the wood of the offering of his own side? Where is the man willing to die for obedience? Something has changed. Where there was once intense self-restraint, now there is grotesque self-indulgence. How in the world did Isaac, who could discipline himself to carry that wood to the altar, where did that Isaac go? Now he's primarily driven by appetite. He indulges his own desires to a grotesque level. And last week we saw at the end of Genesis 26 that Isaac has become characterized by fear. His once great faithful trust in God has been eroded by fear until his patience has been twisted into passivity. Disobedience, self-indulgence, fearful passiveness. By the time you get to the end of Genesis 27, you realize that the opening line of the chapter, the description of Isaac's physical blindness is a sign of his moral blindness. His physical decay is a metaphor for his moral decay. When we look at Isaac's life in Genesis 27, we get a very sobering lesson regarding sin. At some point in Isaac's life, he crossed the Rubicon. The sins of fear and self-indulgence began to define him. A friend asked me recently, when does our yielding to sin become an addiction? When does a manageable sin that doesn't really harm us, when does it become a defining trait that erodes our character and destroys us and destroys others? My friend said, you know, that's the magic question. Because nobody knows. When one person abusing alcohol crosses the line into alcoholism and his friend abusing alcohol with him doesn't. This is the great mystery, isn't it? When does all of those weaknesses and sins and peccadilloes of your life, when do they rise up and destroy you? When we look at the total life of Isaac, we see that whatever success a person achieves by God's grace, it is no guarantee that their life will end in a success. You cannot depend on your past victories. This is terrifying to me. I've looked for many ways to get out. The last two weeks I've been in a darkness as I've studied these passages. This scares me. Early rains are no guarantee of latter rains. If even Solomon, the wisest of men, died a fool, how much more will you or I stray if we think we can manage our sins and our weaknesses? Isaac's adult life begins in prayer, but it ends prayerless. He begins hearing the voice of God. He ends deaf to God's voice. Would you please repent? We should repent. We should throw ourselves on the grace of God. And say, please, rescue me. 
This can end up terrible. Just because it's worked out so far. This is dangerous stuff I'm playing with, God. Please, God. Three lessons from the life of Isaac. The first, when we look at Isaac, we see a sobering lesson about the power of sin to eat away at us. And at some point, like my friend says, we cross a Rubicon and it's, it's the $24,000 question. Nobody knows when that is. A warning about the second half of life. Now, the second lesson, I... This is going to wound some of you, and I'm sorry. It comes from his children. When we look at Isaac's children, we see a sobering lesson about the failure of parents to pass on the faith to the children. Now, this lesson I'm about to go through is most applicable to parents in the room. If you're not a parent, indulge me, because at the end, I'm going to bring it back to you. Remember who Isaac is. He is the son of Abraham and Sarah. And who are they? They are the ones God has chosen to enter into a unique relationship with that will eventually, ultimately, lead to the healing of the world, the blessing of the world. They are the family through whom the one and only true God is revealing himself to a world that does not know him. And remember this. At the time of their life, there is no Bible. The stuff we know, they didn't know. Nobody knows it. God is just now beginning to teach the stuff that gets recorded in Scripture that we can go to and know. All of this stuff is happening in real time. God taught Abraham who he was. And God taught Abraham how to walk in the ways of God. How to live a life. You know how Abraham learned it was wrong to have more than one wife? When he tried it. And God said no. Until God said no, he didn't know that. There was no teaching of it. There was no body of knowledge of it. He had been raised like everybody else without that knowledge. In other words, all of the lessons of the Bible, they were learning narratively. They were learning through experience. And all of that knowledge of God is now in Isaac. Because Abraham learned it from God and passed it on to Isaac. And it now, in this moment, is a fragile thread called the memory of Isaac. All of this important stuff, who God is and what it means to walk with God. Isaac had to learn it from his father. And now Isaac has to pass it on to his children. Because Isaac's not going to live forever. And when he dies, if his children don't know it, It's done. The great work of God in this world is extinguished. 
Isaac inherited the God-revering way of life and his most important job outside of honoring God himself is to pass this down to his children. This should be the central focus of his life. But when we get to the end of Genesis 26 last week, here was Isaac. He had succeeded in providing food and water for his family. No small feat in a land of drought and enemies. He had grown wealthy, gained recognition in the land, secured a place. He had made it as a man in the world. But the last two sentences of Genesis 26 show us that his 40-year-old eldest son, he failed. He neither prepared him for the future nor taught him the ways of God. Isaac was so well educated in the ways of God, in the faith. He, had enor- he was enormously graced by God. But here he is with children who do not walk with God. The, the last paragraph of the reading Michelle gave us, the last few sentences in Genesis chapter 28, Esau says, oh, mom and dad don't like me to marry Canaanites. It's a tragically late realization. And it's Isaac's fault. Oh, oh, mom and dad sent Jacob off to marry mom's brother's children. I'll go and marry dad's brother's children. Ishmael. And he marries himself out of the covenant. In an attempt to do right by a man who hadn't been taught to do right. Isaac. Failed the most important job he had. He failed to lead Esau away from his adolescent appetites. Esau selling his birthright for meal, you can almost conceive of that for a teenager. How many of you? were totally blind to the future when you were teenagers and lived by your appetites. But a perverted old man, that's a tragedy. You see, at the end of Isaac's life, we learn why Esau was the way he was. It wasn't because of favoritism. It's because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Isaac couldn't help Esau. Because Esau was just like Isaac. Fathers, are you better at making a living than making a Christian? Do not... Neglect your children's spiritual formation. Teach them who God is. Tell them about God. Read the Bible to them. Pray with them. Teach them the ways of God. If you don't have children in our church, those of us who do have children, we need you. The most significant factor in children who are raised in the church, continuing in the church after graduation. Research indicates the most significant factor is not the health of the children's ministry or the youth ministry. It is the health of the church in which they grow up in.
Our health as a church is more important to our children than anything we do with them in those rooms. So even if you don't have children, your college students, your teenagers, your bachelors, bachelorettes, our children need you. The second most significant factor affecting children continuing in the faith after graduation is if that child has real relationships with multiple generations of Christians in the church. Small churches are better at making Christians out of children than big churches. For this alone. Because in small churches, they're not segregated out. Did you hear me? The research indicates the first most important factor in a child continuing in the faith after graduation is not the quality of children's ministry or youth ministry. It's the quality of the church. And the second most important factor is if they have genuine relationships with Christians that are older than them, intergenerational relationships. So beyond the important work of parents in the life of their children, when it comes to passing on the faith, we must be a healthy and truly intergenerational church. If you don't have children in our church, pray for the parents and befriend their children. Simply ask the kids about themselves and their interests and their experiences. Have you talked yet to Allison Cash about her mission trip to Costa Rica? Have you ever held William Veerman? Do you know what school Elias Wickline is going to? Do you know what book Jillian Cook is reading? Do you know where Sam Anderson, what he wants to do after he graduates? Do you know that Shelby's going on his first airplane ride this Friday? Have you ever heard Rose sing? Do you know about Katya's horse? This is your job. Three lessons from the life of Isaac in Genesis 27. The first, when we look at Isaac himself, we see a sobering lesson about the power of sin. The second, when we look at his children, we see a sobering lesson about the importance of teaching our children to walk in the ways of God. And the third lesson comes when we look at his wife, Rebecca. Rebecca. When we look at Rebecca in Genesis 27, we discover grace. If the first two lessons shame us. You see, in Rebecca, we see something that can make up for failures in our character and in our parenting. And to see this, you have to see that what Rebecca does in this passage, her deception... Her trickery is good. It is righteous. It is the right thing to do. You see, when in verse 5, Rebecca overhears Isaac's plan to directly disobey God by giving the blessing to Esau, she knows this is a monumental catastrophe. She knows that God's massive, glorious, gracious, mysterious work to heal this world is all wrapped up in the covenant between God and Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and now hangs on the tiny, fragile thread of Isaac passing it to Jacob. She knows this meal 
is satanic. This perverse meal that Isaac has arranged with Esau, it is wicked. And when you feel the plot of scripture, when you feel the drama, she knows this is make or break. It's all on this moment. So Rebecca steps into the breach. And she's in a situation that many of you have experienced. The terrible dynamic of of having the knowledge but lacking the power. Rebecca is in the dilemma faced by everyone who suffers from the divorce between knowledge and power. So she is necessarily forced to find indirect ways to make her knowledge effective. Guile and the selective use of information under these circumstances, it's appropriate. Think of hiding Jews from the Nazis. You lie, you cheat, you trick. Think of lying to a murderer about the location of someone they want to kill. That's not an ethical quandary. That is absolutely not what the Bible's talking about when it says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't have to debate that. Every, you don't even have to think for a moment. Guy runs in the room with, and says, he's trying to kill me, and then hides in the corner. Another guy comes in with a gun, says, where is he? You say, over there. That's not, there's no ethical trickiness to that. These are extreme situations. This is not tricking and lying to get your way. This is not tricking and lying to keep somebody down, to get a better business deal. This is an extreme situation. If you're familiar with the Bible, there are other versions of this. Pharaoh wants to kill all of the babies of the Jews. So what do the Hebrew midwives do? They lie. What about the deception practiced by Moses' mother in Exodus 2? What about the lie told by Rahab in Joshua chapter 2? What about the deception by Jael in Judges 4 and 5? What about God giving Samuel a deceptive strategy to get away from the murderous King Saul? What about David's deception of madness when living among the Philistines? When you see that in this situation Rebecca is in, you suddenly see that Rebecca is the great heroine of the book of Genesis. Outside of Mary, I know no one like her in the Bible. She recognizes what her husband intends to do, that what Isaac was up to was nothing less than the total destruction of God's covenant. Giving the covenant to Esau would eradicate everything that God had been doing. Giving the covenant that makes that child the leader of the family, the the, the interpreter of all the family's knowledge to the world, the passer on of all of the gifts in that family to the world. This can never be Esau. And so she does this. She fixes this situation in the only way possible. Not by force and not by confrontation. Do you think a a woman in the ancient Near East had power? But by guile. And at the same time, I don't have time to show it. But she acts with tact and delicacy and affection. And she arranges this deception. She does it in a way that preserves the dignity of her husband. I wish I could show you the details of this. The the subtle changes in her recounting of what was said by Isaac. She lifts her husband up. And by the end, thanks to Rebecca. The 
first time Isaac blesses Jacob, it's a pagan blessing. Compare it to Abraham's blessing. It's not there. He doesn't name Yahweh. He doesn't pass on the covenant goodness. But after Rebekah gets finished with him in her tricky ways, when he blesses Jacob at the end of the story, it's an Abrahamic blessing. It's a covenant blessing. He has risen up and finally become the man he was meant to be. By the end of the chapter, Isaac is properly related to Jacob. And thanks to her, Jacob is properly recognizing his father. And thanks to Rebecca at the end, fratricide is avoided. The only time in the Bible we've seen this level of hatred between brothers is Cain and Abel. And the last time that, did, that ended in fratricide. Brother killing brother. By the end of, of this story, Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau, the birth order is reversed without fratricide, all because of Rebekah. And by the end, Jacob is sent off to find a proper wife on a journey that will tame his cleverness and bring him into a more proper relation to his brother. And even more important, he finally, Jacob, who doesn't ever speak of God, except for in this one perverted moment where he says to Isaac, you're God. By the end of Jacob's life, because of his mother, he knows God. What lesson is there in this for us? It's this. Rebecca is in an impossible situation, married to a profoundly flawed man, the mother of two deeply wounded apostate children who are both very, very far from the faith. Neither Jacob nor Esau have anything to do with God. They are prodigals, but Rebecca is not. She's a woman of great faith. Look at chapter 27, verse 12. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob should have been willing to risk life and limb for God's way to work out. He wasn't. So Rebecca said, I'll take it all. Let the curse be on me. I'll take all of the negative consequences. You know who Rebecca is in this moment? She is Esther. If I die, I die. It's all worth this moment. And you know what? Look at verse 45. Verse 45. Jacob, you've got to go until your brother's anger turns away and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you for them. Why should I be bereft of both in one day? And you know what? Jacob didn't come back for 20 years and she was dead. And she knew it. See, in this story, Rebecca is Abraham on Mount Moriah. She lays her son down. She knows that she's got to act in such an extreme manner that she will irreparably wound Esau. And she will lose Jacob. 
And she was clever enough to know that from the beginning. But as soon as she heard the words come out of Isaac's mouth, Esau, we're going to do this. She did what she had to do. And I'm convinced from the beginning she knew the price. She's a type of Christ. It all works. Every thing God needed to happen happens in this critical extended scene because Rebecca was more loyal to the king, to God, than even her love for her children that she had endured 20 years of barrenness to have. The good news is because of Rebecca's clever action. If I've ever known a a story in the Bible that illustrates the passage in Peter about a wife with an unbelieving husband wins him through quietness, it's Rebecca. She doesn't change her husband by direct confrontation. She wins him. She wins him over by appealing to his best. So that finally at the end, Isaac rises up. That moment where Esau said, who have you blessed? And and, and Isaac says, I've blessed who I've blessed. And yes, he will be blessed. That's the moment of his turn. That's the moment when he says, you know what? God did what God was always going to do. I tried to stop it and I can't take it back. And from then on, Isaac turns and he acts right. Jacob, who up until this moment has had no respect for his father, Esau's exchanges with his father are all pleas. They're endearing. Isaac, up until this moment, his exchanges with his father are demanding commands. No respect for him. But by the end, he respects his father. She lost her sons. But God proved true. By the end of Esau's life, he comes back. By the end of Jacob's life, he comes back. We saw that at the end of Isaac's life, he came back. So this is the grace for me. The third lesson I see here, the lesson I see with Rebecca. It's this. It's a lesson about weakness. When all the odds are against us and we have failed miserably and we are looking at a tattered family, a tattered character, when we've gotten to the end of our lives and we're dirty old men and our children are apostate, what we see in in Rebecca is that as long as there is breath, there is hope. And that if we move toward God in deep loyalty, there is hope. So here's my concluding apology. All of us are missionaries. We're all in holy orders. Whatever you do is God's work. You're in ministry as much as I am. 
Mike Medley and I were talking earlier this week. We get to Sunday tired. My goal for Sundays is that we would come here and we would rest and be encouraged. But this is no happy, clappy passage. And so I apologize. I wish, I wish that I could end it in a happy, clappy way. I looked and looked, but I can't. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to go to counseling, therapy. Some of you need to make Jesus Christ the king of your life. You need to be loyal to him. Some of you need to hang in there. Jacob and Esau were 77 years old when this happened. And Rebecca was still playing the long game. She was doing everything she could for their faith to make it. Some of you, hold on. Don't give up hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Pray for your kids. Be Rebecca. Do whatever it takes to trust in God. And to love God. And God can use that. Let's pray.